Aldrich was born in a small Swiss village, January 1st, 1484. He studied theology at Basel and Buren, where humanist teachings were thriving. He would go on to study at the University of Vienna, where he would receive a Master of Arts in 1506. He would become a priest in the village of Glarus, where he would continue his humanist teachings and become proficient in the Greek New Testament. By the time of his ministry in Zurich in 1518, he would have memorized all of Paul's letters in the original Greek. By the time he became a priest he, in 1518, he had already begun, through his study of the New Testament, and all these passages that began to roll in his mind, he began to come to the same, the same conclusions as Martin Luther. However, Holdrich would often claim that Luther never influenced his own thinking, but that rather he discovered the same doctrine by his study of Scripture. He was a pastor and a patriot. He was a theologian and a politician. He fought with passion. Even today, if you were to go to Zurich, you would find there a statue of Ulrich Zwingli standing with a Bible in one hand and a sword in another. He was passionate, devoted, and well-studied. Timothy George says of Ulrich, no one preached Solus Christus, rather, more strongly than him, that is, Christ alone. One example of this is in his 67 articles, he writes, The summary of the gospel is that our Lord Christ, true Son of God, has made known to us the will of His heavenly Father, and has redeemed us from death and reconciled us with God by his guiltlessness. Therefore, Ulrich writes, Christ is the only way to salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. The exclusivity of Christ. This is the great Protestant doctrine that teaches that Christ is the only way to salvation. That His vicarious death and His victorious resurrection is the only way that sinners can be saved. But this is not merely a Protestant doctrine, but as I hope to show you this morning, a biblical one. One that Jesus Himself taught His disciples. Now just to remind us of where we have been as we begin our, or continue rather, our study in Luke chapter 18. Jesus has just concluded a conversation that he has had with a rich young ruler. Now this rich young ruler had a lot of things in this world. The text tells us that he was extremely rich. And Jesus confronts the man in his sin and says to him, sell everything you have, give to the poor and come and follow me. To which the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful because he was unwilling to give up the one thing that kept him from the kingdom of God. And the crowds responded to Jesus by saying, who can be saved? If this guy is out, and he was, a, he was an upright and righteous guy, if this guy's out, well then who is in? 
And you'll be reminded that Jesus said that salvation is impossible with man, but that it is possible with God. That man cannot save himself. That it requires an act of God in order for us to be saved. And this impossible salvation that is offered to us through Christ is what we want to think about this morning. So as we delve into the text this morning, I want you to have in your mind that question, who can be saved? As Jesus begins, in contrast, to save two surprising sinners. A blind beggar and another rich man who was an extortioner. The impossible, as we'll find, is possible only through the death and resurrection of Christ. Friend, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18. It's found on page 878 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. If you're not accustomed to looking at the Bible, open it up and find those small little numbers. And on page 878, right at the top, you'll find a little number 30, 31. That's where we're going to begin this morning. And we're going to go on down through verse 10 of chapter 19. Hear the word of the Lord. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Friend, this is a wonderful text, no doubt memorable to many of us who grew up in church and attended many Sunday school classes. We see this one overarching theme, beginning in verse 31 and stretching over into verse 10, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. And that His salvation was accomplished through His death and resurrection and is available to all who repent and believe in Him. Friends, right here in these verses we find the Gospel presentation most clearly articulated by Dr. Luke. As Luke is writing to Theophilus, to assure him of all the things that he has come to know and believe. Theophilus would have heard these words and be assured that Christ Jesus came according to the promise of God. That Christ Jesus alone is able to make the blind see. And that Christ Jesus is the one who calls sinners to repentance and to faith. My hope this morning is that we will see that the work of salvation requires three ingredients. So if you take notes this morning, we have three main points I want us to consider. First, the first main ingredient of salvation is found in verses 31 through 34. The vicarious death and the victorious resurrection of Christ. Apart from this, there is no salvation. Jesus makes this point emphatically clear, and we'll look at it briefly. The second ingredient, the opening of spiritual eyes to see Jesus. That the healing of blind Bartimaeus was a living, vivid illustration of the spiritual blindness and the need for spiritual eyes to see Jesus. And third ingredient we'll see there in, the, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. The summons to genuine repentance and faith. That a gospel presentation that does not extend a response falls short of a true gospel presentation. That if we are to share the gospel, it must include a summons from the Savior to repent and believe. So these three ingredients is what we want to consider in our time this morning. Number one, the vicarious death and the victorious resurrection of Christ. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. This motif that Luke is using to organize the heart of his gospel, 
begins all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51, as Jesus sets His face to go to Jerusalem. And it will culminate here in chapter 19, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And as He's traveling, He is teaching His disciples why He came. And lest His disciples miss the point, He clearly teaches them, yet as we see again, they are spiritually blind and unable to perceive. He tells them that as they go up to Jerusalem, now everyone, if you've never been to Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sets high above sea level. Everything around it is below. So, so when you read your Bible, you'll always read, you either go up or you go down from. And so they are going up to Jerusalem. And notice Jesus says very clearly that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus uses here one of His favorite titles for Himself when he refers to the death and resurrection of Christ, he always uses the phrase, the Son of Man. And here Jesus is borrowing language from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, he writes this, Then I saw a nights of visions, and behold, the Ancient of Days took his place, his clothes were as white as snow, and his hair and his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. And he came and sat down, and streams of fire, and they came before him. A thousand thousand served him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And as it goes on, it, he, Daniel tells us of a one that looks like the Son of Man who comes and stands before the Most High who is given authority and power and dominion over God's kingdom. Jesus here in our text this morning is saying that He is the fulfillment of the prophecy that, da that Daniel saw. But this Son of Man would not come with victorious thrones and kingdoms, with a mighty army, but He came to suffer. Now for you and I, as we read the Bible and we understand, well, of course Jesus came to die and to suffer. But friends, no one in the first century would have expected that when the Messiah came, that He would come and suffer. No, see, they read their Bible and they understood rightly that when the Messiah came, it would be victorious. That He would rule over the enemies of God's people. But notice here in the text that Jesus says, that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. But on the third day He will rise. Jesus here predicts His own death and resurrection. And as we read the story, we understand that, that these things did happen. That Jesus was mocked. That Jesus was shamefully treated. That Jesus was killed. And that Jesus did in fact raise three days later. A friend, Jesus is making a point so clear in our text 
that he is the means by which God will bring about the salvation that we see displayed in these next two stories. That his life will be the currency that purchases the freedom that God's people enjoy now. But we notice also the spiritual blindness of his disciples. Now this is in no way to somehow mitigate their responsibility to believe what Jesus is saying. But one of the themes we find in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus blinds the eyes of the disciples and Jesus gives sight to the disciples. If you were to turn over a few pages to the end of the letter, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Luke records a story of some disciples that were traveling on the road to Emmaus. And when they were traveling, they encountered Jesus. And as they talked with Jesus and Jesus shared with them, they didn't see Him. They didn't understand that this was Jesus, the one that they had followed all those years. And then Luke records this to us in Luke 24, 31. Verse 30, when He was at the table with them, He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. You see, God had given them spiritual eyes to be able to see. To see that Jesus was the Savior that they needed. Up until this point, they didn't understand why Christ had died and why He had rose again. And friend, this morning, you might also wonder, why is it that they sing all of these songs about death and blood and sacrifice? It's quite bloody people here. Friend, it's because we believe that all of that, all of that torture, all of that torment, all of that suffering, even that's depicted in Jesus' own prediction here, that was so that we would be saved from the Father's wrath that our sin rightly deserved. We understand ourselves this morning to be sinners in need of a Savior, and that God purchased our salvation through the vicarious death. That word vicarious means in the place of someone else. See, Jesus didn't deserve all of these things. There's nothing that He did that merited His death. But He died in our place. That all those who would repent and believe in Him might have eternal life. We notice even here Jesus predicting that he would rise three days later. Friend, one of the wonderful truths that we want to affirm is that no one made Jesus do it. Jesus knew what he got into. He was, as we sing, a willing sacrifice. What measure of love Jesus has for you. Perhaps you doubt whether or not Jesus' death is sufficient to save. What more can heaven give than Jesus, a perfect, sinless sacrifice? And this is the point that Jesus is driving at, that He has come to seek and to save the lost, and that His salvation was accomplished through His death and His resurrection. 
Well, let's get moving along then. We see secondly, that not only do we need the death of Christ and His resurrection, but we need spiritual eyes to be able to see. We are told that they continue their journey. And one of the cities that you would pass through on your way to Jerusalem was Jericho. It set just a number of miles from the city. They would have naturally gone through Jericho. Jericho was the the hub of the economy of Israel. There were many roads that intersected there in Jericho. And so naturally, we find someone like blind Bartimaeus. Now, we don't have his name here. Luke doesn't record it. But in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 10, Mark tells us that his name was Bartimaeus. Um, probably because his, he would become a, a, a notorious or infamous follower of Jesus as one who was blind but who could now see. And we're told that blind Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. There was no social security, no welfare system in Israel that would have provided for someone like Bartimaeus. And therefore, naturally, he would have had to give himself to begging in order to make some sort of living that he might have food and and clothing and a place to live. And so he's out there begging on, on the roadside, and as he does, he hears this commotion. Naturally so, he's wondering what's going on. No doubt being disoriented by the frenzy that begins to uh, increase as Jesus comes along, he asks who is coming by. And while the disciples don't see Jesus, spiritually speaking, notice here, ironically, a blind man knows who Jesus is. Look Look what we find. As he is told there in verse 37 that it is Jesus of Nazareth, He responds in verse 38 by crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then of course, as uh, we read, his friends tell him to be quiet. Hey, blind man, please into the back. You are a nuisance. You're bothering us. We've come to see this great king. And to which he cries out all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Oh friend, his words are tinged with theological truth. You don't just go around calling someone a son of David. What does that mean? This blind man is attributing to Jesus that he is the long-awaited king of Israel. You heard earlier in the prophecies that were given in 1 Chronicles. You heard through the prophecies there in Ezekiel that God promised that His servant David would come and establish His throne. We heard from the angels at the birth of Christ that He was the son of David. And now we have a blind man. While His disciples were unable to see Him, He rightly sees who Jesus is. And he cries out for mercy. Similar to the publican earlier as he cried out for mercy, he literally cries that God would have pity upon him because of his state that he found himself. 
And Jesus comes to him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And in a surprising story twist, in a surprising, surprising pot, plot twist, the man says, Lord, I want to see. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you will know that there is no story in Scripture in your Old Testament where a blind man ever recovers his sight. Dead men are raised. Men with leprosy are healed. Those with broken bones are mended. No one who was born blind has ever received their sight. This is perhaps one of Jesus' greatest miracles. And without a touch, the man miraculously receives his sight. And he sees for the very first time. And Jesus' healing here is meant to be an illustration of God's salvation that has come. Through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet declares a curse of blindness upon the people of God because of their rebellion. In your Old Testament, through the prophets, blindness was a sign of judgment. Not of the individual's judgment because of something they did wrong, but rather as a sign of judgment upon the nation as a whole. In, in fact, excuse me, you'll remember many months ago when John the Baptist doubted whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. What did Jesus tell his disciples to go and say to him? Go and tell John that the, that the blind see. That the deaf hear. That the lame walk. In other words, one of the signs that the salvation that God had promised had come was because people who were physically blind began to physically see. And those that were spiritually blinded were given spiritual sight to be able to see. And we see that this man was not merely physically healed, but as the, the leper in chapter 17, look here at verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. That verb that Luke uses, sozo, means to save. Your faith has saved you. Not that his faith was the means of salvation, but rather that his faith was the instrument by which he believed or trusted in the means, that is, in the person of Christ. Friend, the reality here I hope to drive home to you is that you will only be saved if you come to Jesus and cry to Him for mercy. Brothers and sisters, one of the wonderful truths is that, that you and I are recipients of God's mercy through Christ. Never doubt God's mercy towards you. God is merciful towards us in Christ. 
just as he was merciful to this blind beggar. But more than that, we understand as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18 that we need to have eyes in order to see. The Bible teaches us that our sin has blinded us spiritually. That we cannot see God unless He gives us sight. And so the Apostle Paul prayed and encouraged the church in Ephesus to pray that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Perhaps you've paid attention in our service. Every week we have a prayer of petition. And in that petition we pray for illumination. That doesn't mean that you know, the lights would come on like as a cue but rather that we would have eyes that would be able to see because we are like Bartimaeus. And apart from Jesus giving us spiritual eyes to see, we cannot, we will remain just like the disciples in our unbelief. But once our eyes are opened, Jesus summons us to repentance and faith. And this is the last ingredient we see here in our text this morning. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19, we see the summons to repentance and faith. The summons to repentance and faith. Luke goes on to tell us that Jesus continues his, his journey, and he arrives in Jericho. And as he was passing through, not looking to stay there in Jericho, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Oh yes, all those memories of Sunday school have begun to warm your mind again about a a wee little man climbing a sycamore tree. And we're told here in our text that he is in double trouble. That he is the chief tax collector and rich. And he wants to see Jesus. Now, you'll be reminded of two things. Number one, that we've already learned that it is impossible for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel, Jesus says, to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. So that's strike number one for little Zacchaeus. Strike number two, we've seen also In the story of the publican, he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jewish citizens that crossed over and participated with the Roman occupation. They were traitors. They were despised. But more than that, we are told, strike number three, that he was a chief tax collector. Now, no one really knows what this exactly means, but it seems that he had such a growing business of extortion that he had to farm out others to help him in his extortion. He had had gotten rich on the people of Jericho. He would have been unwelcome there that day on the side of the road. No one would have said, look, Zacchaeus is coming. No, everyone 
would have hissed. Everyone would have turned their head. No one would have wanted to be around him. And Zacchaeus finds himself in an impossible situation. Not only has his sin separated him from God, but so has providence. He is small in stature and can't see Jesus. But Zacchaeus goes and climbs that sycamore tree, seeking to find him. And there he sees him. And look what we were told. That that Jesus came to the place and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Now of all the Greek verbs, this is probably perhaps one of the strongest ones. It is necessary, Jesus says. It is a must. I have to. This is a divine appointment, Zacchaeus. You and I need to talk. There is nothing in this text that that communicates happenstance, chance. Jesus is here, and Zacchaeus is here in this perfect moment that he might hear the call to repentance and faith. I must, he says, stay at your house. But one of the problems for most of us in this room today is our Sunday school memory. You see, we, taught, we were taught that Zacchaeus, that wee little man, he was a cute little fellow, wasn't he? How he climbed up that sycamore tree, man, he was such a devout follower of Christ. Friend, that is reading into the text something that's not there. If we were to poll the crowds that day, Zacchaeus would have won the award for the least likely to be saved. Zacchaeus at Jericho High School would have won the award for the least likely to receive salvation by God. He was a vile man, a wicked man. He had extorted people. You probably had a cousin, or an aunt, or uncle, a grandmother, a grandfather that he had swindled thousands of dollars from. You would not have been encouraged by Jesus' request. You would not have been clapping and saying, praise be to God, what Jesus has done here today. It is a surprising salvation. And that is why verse 7 says, That when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of who is a man who is a sinner. But that's why Jesus had come. He had not come to save the, the Pharisee who had his chest held high in pride of how good he was. Or the rich young ruler who impressed Jesus with his spiritual resume of all the good things that he had done in his life. No, Jesus had come to save the men like Zacchaeus. 
wicked and vile. And we notice here that Zacchaeus doesn't just merely receive something. He responds to something. Jesus had summoned him, and in verse 8, he responds to the summons, the call that Jesus gave to him. And unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus says, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The law did not require this. It shows you the length of repentance and renewal that the the Spirit was working in the life of Zacchaeus as he says, if I defrauded anyone right now, I will restore it. I will not delay. Friend, here is the truth as we understand the Gospel that a call to repentance and faith means that our life is changed. That we do not continue down the same road. And friend, maybe perhaps today that's you. Someone once told you because you did something, you prayed a prayer, you were baptized, you attended some event that you were saved, but your life has never been changed. Friend, let me just encourage you with this truth this morning. Repent and believe, for today is the day of salvation. The call to salvation is a call to repentance to die to sin, and to live to Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying that He has brought. That He has come to seek and to save the lost. Notice what He writes there, verse 9. What's recorded by Luke. Today salvation has come. Friend, what a wonderful truth it is that we can offer a guarantee That if you would repent and believe, that you can know with confidence today, not some some time in the future after you're baptized or after you attend catechism or after you do some deed. No, no, no. Repent and believe today and today you can know that you're saved. It is instantaneous. And Jesus here in saying that even this man who saved is a son of Abraham. It is a reminder that not all who are sons of Abraham are true sons of Abraham. But it's only those who trust in Christ as Messiah, as King, who are saved and who are part of Abraham's family. Of course, the language that Jesus uses here in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, is what we heard in Ezekiel 34 earlier. As I read to you, I hope you heard it clearly. I, 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 God says, will seek out my sheep. I will save them. I will send my shepherd. I will do these things. Friend, if you're a Christian this morning, you did not stumble your way to Jesus. He summons you to come and to follow Him. This is what the Bible teaches. That God seeks out sinners. That we don't seek out after God, but that He seeks out after us. 
Friend, if you doubt this truth, go back and read Ezekiel 34 again. See there God's promise of a good shepherd who will come and seek and save the lost. And then, friend, then go to John 10 and hear these words that Jesus says. Hear them from Jesus' own lips. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them in also. And friend, listen. And they will listen to my voice. They will be like Zacchaeus who will hear the call, I must stay with you tonight. And they will listen in obedience and repent and trust in Him. Friend, the call to you is a call to repentance and faith. If you do not understand yourself to be a Christian today, then let me encourage you to come to Jesus. There find mercy in Him. He is calling you to come and to follow Him, to forsake your life, And to go and follow Him. Friend, even the most unlikely can be saved. Perhaps that's you this morning. If you were to confess all of your sin, we would conclude that this person probably not going to be saved. Brothers and sisters, let us never have that attitude. Let that attitude never be thought among this congregation. You will never encounter a sinner in your life who is unable to be saved through the vicarious death of Christ and His victorious resurrection. For there is never anyone who is too far gone for this great Savior to save. Friend, He makes the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, and even the blind to see. Even sinners, as notorious as Zacchaeus. Brothers and sisters, let us go to this world with full confidence and assurance of faith that Jesus will save and is saving through His death and His resurrection. And it is available to all who would repent and believe in Him. Let's pray. I pray that we would all find in Christ this great Savior. That we would understand ourselves to be a great sinner. We are know that we our rebellious people. We know our own sin. Oh, may we find in Christ a great Savior. Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes that we might see and there repent and believe and hear that call of Christ to come. To come now and to follow Him. Help us, we pray, for Your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.